You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hello, Riverdale gang. I am here in the pre-show today with another uh, another review rewatch interview uh, with special guest Emily Tyler, who is a dear friend of mine and Chloe's, as well as a um, PhD candidate in uh, at the University of Alberta. Um, I'll let Emily talk a bit more about herself. Um, we're going to have a little pre-show conversation today about genre. Uh, unpack that subject, that idea a little further. Um, as this episode is just an amazing microcosm, an example of genre, and uh, this series as a whole plays so uh, fast and loose, but also cleverly with genre. So, Emily, uh, tell us, uh, tell the gang about yourself. Oh, thank you for having me. We're currently sitting in a beautiful, bougie park. Yeah, Shaughnessy. Affirming our friendship and talking mm-hmm. about genre. We're as surra- we do. Surrounded by mansions. Any which <laughs> one could possibly be Thornhill. Probably they're calling the cops on us right now. <laughs> well, that's what you do. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm currently pursuing a PhD um, at the University of Alberta in the Department of English and Film Studies. I research and I teach from, from Edmonton some of the year, and then I'm in Vancouver some of the year. Um, and my research um, is largely about antebellum American literature. That word antebellum just means pre-Civil War. Mm-hmm. So leading up to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and within that, I'm interested in the ways that genre, especially Gothicism and horror, um, in that early American literature, uh, acts as a kind of hegemonic force that fantasizes black and indigenous bodies as dangerous, mm. um, and that authors settler colonial institutions as engaged in self-defense rather than domination or oppression. So mm. I'm, I, it's a genre project, um, but I'm really looking critically at race and gender. Um, right. And the ways that uh, fantasy fantasize women and, and people of color in early American literature. Mm. And so the first time that I saw Riverdale, I thought, wow, there's a lot of really interesting contemporary genre stuff happening here mm-hmm. on a bunch of different registers. So Riverdale is a testament to how we're taught really early to use genre conventions mm. as a starting point for understanding any given text. Um, can you also give us just a little context on your relationship to the show? We've had yeah. uh, everything from guests who, like, watch the pilot and then haven't seen anything. We've had people who've worked on the show but have never seen it, and we have other uh, other regular watchers like me and Chloe. Yeah, I've seen all of it. Yeah. Um, and I've seen a few episodes more than once that I think are really... Mm-hmm. Exemplary and do different things mm-hmm. um, in in interesting ways or in ways that are thought provoking for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it's like my favorite or the best show on TV right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you on that. <laughs> but um, I I do think that it's a really accessible show for especially teens who are interested in um, identity politics mm-hmm. and maybe haven't had access to um, darker, more crime focused. Um, sitcoms, if those have been kept away, so Riverdale might be a really good right. um, entrance point if you're interested in that kind of darker side of, mm. yeah, okay. stuff. So um, I like it pretty well. Um, cool. I was a big fan, of course, of the um, comics when I was growing up. Yeah, they were big road trip comics for me. Um, in the back of you know, big SUV on the way out to the camping trip. Um, I love hearing everyone's unique relationships. They're all weirdly relatable but extremely unique and different if that makes sense and i was late to the show so Mm. all i binged all the both seasons Mm. 
one at one time. You mm -hmm. know, it was my show, and I, I watched it all the way through. Right. So um, it's pretty fresh in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I I liked it. Hey. Okay. I liked some. Uh, every character has a good thing, and every character has a oh my god, what <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> thing um, that I you know. I, I, as with any cultural object, um, you're going to be navigating uh, mm -hmm. a, a range of people who are in charge of different parts of a show. And so mm -hmm. I might be more in line with one person. Like, let's say the cinematography is excellent in this show. Yes. The costume design, the character design, the casting, all of those things are really great. Do I always love the writing? <laughs> nay, nay. <laughs> you know, pros, cons. Yep. I feel you. Great, uh, good. So that's that's what you bring to, bring into this discussion yeah. perspective. I'm not writing fanfic, but I'm a fan. <laughs> Excellent. Medium fan. I, don't think, I haven't written any Riverdale fanfic. That would feel. I mean, technically, something I'm working on for, which I'll talk on the show about next week. But I'll t remind me to tell you after the show. Sounds yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back to back awesome. to some of your genre talk. Yeah. So. Like I mentioned, I, I think that Riverdale is really interesting because it's really uh, bending genres and mushing things together. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a it's a definitely a teen show, right? It's marketed towards teens, but mm -hmm. like obviously we are not teenagers and we love it mm -hmm. for all kinds of different reasons. But the show is by the CW, right? It's marketed towards teenagers, um, yep. and it's about high school. Ooh, mm -hmm. there's a wasp. Ah, oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm not good with flying things. I apologize. Wasps are <laughs> the enemy. They're jerks. <laughs> um, it's also a genre bender, and it does that in two ways. So mm. first, it's a genre bender in terms of medium. Mm -hmm. So it's a TV show about a comic book. So we have comic mm. book conventions mm -hmm. that are being adopting in, 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 into this television medium. So mm -hmm. it's doing that. So there's something formal happening there. Right. And also, it adopts and melds pop genres. And in this case, it's particularly teen drama. Mm -hmm. And, um, like, think OC, The Gossip Girl, right? It has that yeah. kind of, like, vibe Which to it. Which also are CW brand creations, right? There you go. I did not know that. There's so. consistency. I think, I think they are. Consistency. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I might be wrong about that, but I'm, pre I'm pretty sure it's the OC. Was. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, you know. Well, I'm going to Google that while you okay. continue saying all these wonderful um, uh, So, yeah, teen drama beats. and crime fiction or the mystery, right? Mm -hmm. And I largely work with literature novels mm -hmm. but when I say like a text or a textual object I mean it could be a book it could be a film it could be a television it could be a tweet yes it could be a Facebook post so I'm using that term pretty liberally um, to be really any kind of system of objects that tells us a story in some way we could use the word narrative I guess I'm not really sure mm -hmm. there's lots of words for that so right well I, I like what I know of your work includes a lot of what I would describe as a multimedia or multimedium um, mm -hmm. overlaps. Yeah, I'm really interested in a field of engagement between lots of different textual objects as opposed to mm -hmm. primacy of one in any given field. Okay, so. so the OC was on Fox and it was a Warner Brothers production. Ooh. So I'm I'm so off. <laughs> I am so off. Anyway. Um <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I guess today I want us to think about genre in two ways. Mm -hmm. And the first is, what is genre? Definitional kind of question, but I think that it's a difficult one to answer. Yep. And then, what does genre do yep. in relation to Riverdale, in relation to the show? Mm -hmm. So, I guess I wanted to start with you, Ryan. When, when I say that, genre, mm -hmm. what is genre? Mm. 
Um, like, what's in your mind when you think of that? Um, media that uh, builds itself within a within a select box, within a select framework, um, an existing referential framework, um, with a set of codified tropes, sort of a you know, pick eight off this list of twenty. Um, I think of genre as a. Um, I'm gonna riff into something that I've talked a lot about this on the, the podcast. Fanfic is an extreme example of genre for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely, things that fanfic provide ready to go are familiar, comfortable characters, um, relatable tropes, um, sort of a communication and. Pardon me. Susan Hyde. By the way, it is hazy as fuck. Yes. Oh, can we swear on your podcast? Oh, technically not, but okay. we'll just ignore um, that one. Lazy AF. Yep, yep, okay. yep, yep. And we're in a smoke hazy. cloud. It's, we're in a smoke cloud. <laughs> I'm sorry, BC, national emergency. It's very inconvenient for me right now. Yep. I'm sure other people have it much worse. We chose a park in rebellion. <laughs> um. So, yeah, like I think of the things fanfic provide that make it accessible as being an example of why it's such an accessible um, and successful genre. Uh, and I think in similar ways, other genres provide base frameworks for you to build off of and challenge and conform and change. And uh, the, 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 the interplay and evolution of genres are like an inherent part of the game, yeah. of, of the role. So I picked up on kind of three really important things about what you're saying there about genre. Mm -hmm. First, that idea of the box, Mm -hmm. right? It's a referential system, Mm -hmm. right? Which I think is a really smart way to put this. But that idea of a category of a kind, Mm -hmm. right? So a genre is a some kind of a discrete category, right? With overlap, we have subgenres, et cetera, et cetera. But Mm -hmm. just for sake of like this conversation, Mm -hmm. and then second, um, you said uh, something about um, oh god. Uh, how th- how things change over time, right? Mm-hmm, how they are mm-hmm. kind of culturally important, yeah. and they build off the work of what came before them. Yeah. And then the third important thing is um, you call them tropes, but I would call them conventions. Genres have specific conventions, mm-hmm. so it could be a style of writing, but it could be character types, mm-hmm. it could be settings, it could be blah 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 blah. Like yeah. what? And it's kind of the question is what does this genre need to be in this? What does this text need to be in this genre? Right. It needs X Y Z. This is your list yeah. of things that it needs to do in order to be a thing mm-hmm. so I think that those are three really good w- starting places for genre mm-hmm. whenever when the first time I had to ans- answer that question I said like it's like when I walk into a bookstore and I like go to the sci-fi section or the mm-hmm. cookbook section so I was really aware without being aware that it was a marketing thing mm-hmm. right so there's a marketing part to it too right what do we buy how do we consume it mm-hmm. but genre comes from Latin be a French, and it means kind or class. Mm-hmm. So there's your category right off the bat, right? Right. Um, classic genre theorists, which we can go to Plato and Shakespeare, they talked about types of literature and poems and drama and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're largely interested in dividing up textual objects so into like, categories. Like referring to the old categories of a romance or, or a comedy, a tragedy or a comedy. Yeah. Um, and then the set of rules of what makes what. E- yeah. Is this a speech, right? There's also like a mm-hmm. mode. Is this meant to be said out loud? Like those original ones are. Mm-hmm. Is this a drama or is this something that's written and read right. um, in different ways? So, yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting is, is um, as a young artist, I encounter a lot of those rules um uh, 
and they felt like gatekeeping. Mm. Totally. Especially some of the classical ones. These are really conventional notions. They're old notions of genre, and we don't really abide by them in mm-hmm. our pop, mm-hmm. in our postmodern age where everything fits with everything else. Yes, this resurgent dadist surrealist yeah. nihilism we got so, going on. A lot. There's no. It's. I think it's important to say that there's no undisputed system of genre. Mm-hmm. So no scholar has given an overarching. This is how genre works. Although mm-hmm. I'm sure that someone <laughs> disagrees with me and they think that they found the answer. Right. But all of them are have a different um, center, a different point that they're trying to make. So. This, this is sounding familiar. Yeah. In, from my psych history days, <laughs> of everyone has a completely unifying system. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, inter- it's interesting to note that. Um, you know, uh, early genre studies are really analogous to biological classifications of genus mm-hmm. and species. Mm-hmm. So in English itself, trying to become a um, spider attack, sorry. Thank you. Um, in English, trying me. to uh, make a name for itself or become like a force in the university system, which is mm. its own kind of business yep. popularity contest. <laughs> <laughs> um, it tried to make itself as... Um, as scientific as possible. And so right. we see structuralism kind of come out and this this creation of categories in this early genre fiction as like a way of stepping into that mode. But that right. really is um, not how we really think about them now. That's just kind of like an entryway into talking. Yeah, let's step one more, one go one step more um, accessible and contemporary, one more, uh, now that we've got the context. Yeah. So... Um, it's, I think it's good to think through all of these ways of genre because all of them have little things that make sense in them, right? Mm-hmm. They're kind of like self-help <laughs> books mm-hmm. or like diet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there's so like, like a kernel of truth and then the rest is bullshit. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, another swear word. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so self-help as a genre. <laughs> as a genre, for example. yes. Right. Um, so um, I want us to think about all the different ways that kind of people have thought through mm-hmm. sorting text by. So right. we could do it by media. So I'm going to try to say how this relates to Riverdale <laughs> yeah. in case of each of these. But some of them don't apply, so I'll just try to give you an Broad idea. theoretical frameworks. Yeah. That's what so, we're playing with today. By media. So then uh, it's a TV show. Yeah. Right? As different from film, as different from comic, as different from podcast. Yeah. Um, uh, or genre is periodization or by country. So I started mm-hmm. by saying I did antebellum American literature. So mm-hmm. that's a is a place and it's also a time period so mm-hmm. there's periodization mm-hmm. we can say that Riverdale is an American contemporary TV drama right Right. Um, you could say it by genre by director uh, genre by director or star or producer or writer or studio mm-hmm. so you can say this is a CW sh- um, TV show mm-hmm. it's developed by Roberto Aguirre uh, Sacasa yep and uh, starring Madeline Petch, who is just my fave sorry that's the <laughs> yep. star of the show um, or maybe Cole Sprouse <laughs> Cole's there. He's there. Um, uh, Madeline's the story. Anyway. You could say by technical process. So you might think back to like, you know, Technicolor or, you know, Cinescope or whatever, right? I would say like animation. Yeah. Animation. This is single camera television. Mm, You could also mm -hmm. say it's a television show filmed in Vancouver, B.C. Mm -hmm. So there's like a range of shows that are filmed here and that could be a genre of, of TV show. Right. Um, the, by cycle and so the one that came to mind here in a really contemporary context is Deadpool being one of those mm. women in the refrigerator films mm-hmm. and that's kind of like a cycle of films like the fallen women films right that often fall into some kind of like trap 
Um, and there's a bunch of them that mm -hmm. are made, and often, historically, we look on those and say, oh, those are the these films. Right. They're, they're the cycle of films that so, happens. So, we're, yeah, we're taking the concept of genre and applying it broadly as to every way it can be applied to categorize. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, films that pass the Bechdel test. Mm -hmm. uh, cycle of films. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, by series. So, these would be like James Bond movies. Mm -hmm. Right? By style. I call Riverdale style Instagram filter, but um, maybe thinking <laughs> yeah. about like German expressionism or surrealist film mm -hmm. is kind of a, a way of thinking through that in a more meaningful way. Than more, more contemporarily, rom-coms. Yeah, rom-coms. And 90s rom-coms versus uh, millennial rom-coms mm. as yeah. subgenre. Totally. Um, by ideology, mm. so propaganda videos or Christian TV or, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, that, that somehow these these adhere to some ideology. Right, yes. Yeah. Um, by venue, like drive-in movies, straight-to-TV mm -hmm, movie, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. By purpose, and we can say entertainment, right? right? By audience, teens, in Riverdale's case. Mm -hmm. By subject or theme, that's such a huge... You know, not to get in worms. We could say family, family friendly, Riverdale, family friendly. To a degree, yes. Yeah, I yes. Mean, some, Rating. There's some well placed gore. Rating is genre. Mm hmm. Melodrama. Mm hmm. Crime and mystery. These are subject content type of words. Mm hmm. By budget. Mm hmm. So we say we talk about the blockbuster films or the, um, the D list the, uh, film. popular uh, category now in the, in the uh, <laughs> upcoming Oscars. Right, 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 right. Finally, the Oscars are a popularity contest. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> um, by artistic status, so I would say that this is a pop show as opposed mm -hmm. to an art TV series, right? We mm -hmm. kind of put these high-low monikers on things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can also talk about things in terms of racial and or gender or sexual identity, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, is this part of the queer and the indigenous canon, right? Right. And that's another kind of genre focus. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot mm -hmm. of people talk about a queer canon, um, and these are all a range of objects that might fall within kind of this reclaimed canon of work, or right. genre of work, that, that, that directly deal with a particular um, identity politic in some way. So that's just a start. That's like, a lot. That's, like, that's I know, a lot. I know, it's a big long <laughs> list of things, but we kind of do all of this just in our heads already, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, none of those are new. It's a built-in categorization <laughs> system. Yeah, and we kind of None of them are overarching. All of them kind of intersect with each other in different ways. That said, taken so broadly, it the meaning starts to almost... Yeah. Bleh. Like, what does it even mean now? Everything is genre. Yeah. Uh, maybe genre is an abstraction. Maybe... I'm going to kind of get to this, but maybe genre is a social construction. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. it, it has a social effect. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe the way... The best way to think about genre. Okay. So, genre is deeply codified... And it's mobilized index to a range of audiences, mm -hmm. uh, or cynically, I might say, to markets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, conventional definitions of genres, and this is a quote by Daniel Chandler, who does a great intro article on this mm -hmm. that I've given you a link to. Yes, yes, we I can, think we'll, we'll throw that up on the Facebook yeah, group. throw that up. But um, he has a really great intro article if this is a thing you're interested in getting into. Mm -hmm. but he says, conventional definitions of genres tend to be based on the notion that they constitute particular conventions of content, such as themes or settings, and or form, including structure and style, which are shared by the texts which are regarded as belonging to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty straightforward. You have 
uh, a genre that has particular conventions, mm-hmm. right? Our, our list of things, our yep. checklist, and or form. So they are all books or they're all TV shows or something like that. Oh, right. Okay. This is what we mean when we say genre. Ah. Broadly. Um, so I did a little experiment today and I went mm-hmm. on my Netflix and I mm-hmm. and I saw how I was being sorted into genres. <laughs> and so what, what are your genres? So take a peek at Netflix, mm-hmm. everybody who's listening. What is being marketed to you and what does this tell you about your genre habits? Mm-hmm. So my top five are in order mm-hmm. horror, dramas, critically acclaimed dramas, British detective TV shows, and crime movies. The next two were action adventure and romance. And that gives you a pretty good idea of what I watch on a regular basis. It's quite a cross-section. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to do me. Yeah, do you. Uh, on my phone here. Oh, boy. Um, exciting TV, sci-fi, and fantasy. Comedies. TV shows. That's generic. Quirky TV shows. Oh, boy. <laughs> watch a lot of TV. Uh, and then it's Netflix Originals, but I'm not sure if that counts. No, go to the next one. Binge-worthy TV shows. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of TV. They've given me gay films after that, though, so... Oh, gay films and then new releases. Uh, so they know I've been going hard on the content. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that this is an interesting experiment. Because yes. it's not always clear to me what my subsection is, but I study horror, and so it makes sense that I would watch a lot of horror. Right? Emily, there's a category called lovable losers, and I'm a, a oh little insulted. God. I'm here for it, oh. but I'm a little. <laughs> I've never gotten that one. I wow, get a lot Netflix. of. Um, I get every once in a while. I get uh, TV shows with a strong female lead. I'm like, oh Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. so Riverdale is a teen drama crime mystery fiction. Yeah. So it's fiction. It's not real. Yep. Everybody. Important distinction. (laughs) Very important. Um, It's adapted from the comic series, and so it draws from that genre extensively. Mm -hmm. Adapting and arguably nuancing, in some cases, um, archetypal characters to the big screen. Mm -hmm. So the obvious archetypes here are the Arthurian knight, the protector, Archie. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. The dark Mm -hmm. seductress, Veronica. Mm. The damsel, the light, the princess, Betty. Right? The outsider, Jughead. Mm-hmm. The final girl, Cheryl. We could go on. Pretty much all of these characters have a have an archetypal history or past that's pulled from capital R romance, which now is the adventure kind of genre. Wanna unpack the final girl a little bit? Yeah. The final girl is a horror <laughs> trope and it is where everybody dies, but there's like a last girl who's usually been protected all the way through in some way. Sometimes and not. Then Sometimes they're kicks kick-ass. butt with her archery skills yeah and 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 outlasts in some way and so um i don't know if you've seen jordan peele's great movie get out which is i haven't yet i've been saving it for the right mood because i've i've heard spectacular things but there's a great um uh um push back at the final girl trope because Mm. it's kind of it's it's a term that kind of came out in the 80s with a lot of slasher films have a final girl right Um, and so some films now are doing a really good job of playing with that um, right. in, in different ways. Wonderful. Um, I think there's even a, a, a Netflix TV show called, or a movie called The Final Girl, which is about a girl who, like, seduces a bunch of frat boys who kill girls and then kills them all instead. Like, she's trained for this her whole life. <laughs> like, Jake Gyllenhaal's in it or someone who looks like him. I'm pretty sure I've seen something like that. I'm glad that exists anyway, somewhere. so that's The Final Girl. So we have haven't, and Cheryl also and her whole family is a really good example of this kind of American gothic mm-hmm. genre. The old house, mm-hmm. the 
it's not a plantation. It's maple syrup, but it's totes rum. Oh yeah, and so <laughs> it is. It, you know, and how that intersects with drugs. It is deep crime history. Yeah. It is totally. Um, and and it's, it's important maybe to say I didn't say this before is that crime the crime genre really comes out of horror and gothicism. We have Edgar mm. Allan Poe writing the first detective stories in the really? early eighteen hundreds. Um, his uh, his uh, du- uh, detective Dupont du- Dupont I do not oh, man. know. I'm gonna get I'm gonna kick myself for not knowing that. But like the the purloined letter. Mm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, those type. There's there's a few stories that are detective fiction, and really that comes out of one of our preeminent gothic authors from the early 1800s. Interesting. So, um, so noir traces directly back to gothic horror. Absolutely. Yeah. Neat. And the gender. Um, the gender tropes therein. Yeah. Like yeah. The well, female and kind of a far off. A different in a house or a ruins or whatever. All that Lost kind of Lenore, yeah. ambiguously absent or. romantic, yeah. and mm. it also um, has all the elements of crime fiction. So a mysterious death that must be solved. That's how we start, right? Yep. Right. Um, multiple suspects with incredible motives and opportunities to commit the crime. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of timeline messing with that we see there. Mm-hmm. A lot of the twists and turns. Um, a detective, or in our case, a set of detectives who are driven to solve the mystery. And then finally, a set of facts or clues that are presented to the audience. And they are invited to mm-hmm. figure it out as they go. Right. So that's the key to me. And that switches us over to the second part. What does genre do? Mm-hmm. Genre requires an audience. Okay. You can't have genre living on its own. Audience impact. Genre frames our interpretation of the text. Mm. So it frames what we reach for in a bookstore or a movie store or whatever. So Um, genre comes with a code, comes with a cipher that we have already. So, like, I know a lot of people who don't like science fiction or fantasy because they just can't get into the worlds. Mm -hmm. They would never go towards that genre because it's a high-information genre. So that means that, mm-hmm. like, you need to build a lot more into the world. You need yes. to know that hyperspace means a certain thing. And there's a lot more information that's codified there. And that's not yeah. really appealing to a lot of people when, they're, when, they, when they do their fiction. So, Fair. Um, trailers are genre bombs, right? Mm. Um, they, give us, they try to give us all the things we need to know if this certain thing is in our wheelhouse or not. Right. So um, crime fiction to me is especially interesting because it compels the audience to be involved in solving the crime. Mm-hmm. The genre relies on suspense, a holding out that there are multiple possible answers to the puzzle. Yeah. Audiences who love crime fiction love that suspense, that, that suspense, and it's trying to take pleasure in, in, in deciphering the clues. Mm-hmm. The predictability of the structure is part of what makes the crime genre enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really great book by someone named Lisa Sunshine. Um, it's mm-hmm. called Why We Read Fiction, Theory of Mind and, and the Novel. Mm-hmm. And she does a whole section on crime and the and theory of mind and um, cognitive psychology. And it's very, very interesting. Why do we love crime drama? Right. And it's really popular right now, right? I can't get into it here, but like all the podcasts. Right. <laughs> crime podcasts in and some way. Can I check in on that point then, how yeah. Riverdale conforms to that genre or is that do you have yeah. that a little bit I mean ahead? I mean it conforms in kind of the ways I said before in terms of its conventions right um, it has a death it has detectives it has a mystery that needs to be solved it has red mm-hmm. herrings mm-hmm. it has suspense right um, lots yeah. of cliffhangers does Jack Head liver die yeah pre- predi- uh, right. pre- specifically flaking the you know predictability of the structure and I think it and, especially um, around um, JP it, it calls mm, into question FB, the way that yeah. oh, sorry it's okay, Skeet Ulrich. Mm. Woo! <laughs> the way that FP um, 
uh, we think he's done it because he's confessed. So the way mm. that our legal systems don't always make room for the real crime, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And that things like a confession is more important to police and clearing the crime is sometimes more important. This is really important in a lot of crime dramas that we see now. A lot of it is looking back at police work and saying, wow, we entrusted our safety to these people and they've made a lot of mistakes, which they would say, it's different now. It's different now. I'm like, I don't know. You just didn't treat people with dignity. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So there there is a systemic criticism and a deconstruction of process. Absolutely. Inherence to. Yeah. Um, Mm. I have a, so... I guess one of the ways that maybe we can get into the way Riverdale is a crime drama, Mm -hmm. um, but it also pushes back, is that we might think of crime drama as a normative genre. So Hmm. by that I mean that it it makes us, it it is kind of a teaching, if you see see it as something that's transmitting a certain idea, Mm -hmm. it's maybe has more normative ideas, social norms, than it is pushing back radical, right? Right. In different ways. It's, it's, so there's a, there's a, kernel of conservatism uh yeah or at least a a return to Mm. a a baseline norm so um while it often while crime drama often takes on socially taboo subjects like death and murder suicide mental illness invasion of personal privacy etc like we can think of a whole range of these kind of transgressive actions Mm -hmm. and they might appear on the whole of its conventions to be transgressive in that way often crime drama reinforces social norms by mobilizing what we should be afraid of Mm -hmm. and then allowing us to return to our conventional normalized normal lives interesting so traditionally we can i have kind of two examples yeah one is how bad guys are in the show who's a bad guy yeah and representation and then um the other one uh, i'll go into in a minute Mm -hmm. so so traditionally, when we look at how bad guys are, ca- are cast across a wide range of media representations, yeah. they're not usually straight white guys. And when they mm-hmm. are, it's usually in a film that's trying to ignore identity politics or is situated within a, 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 a geographic and historical context of whiteness, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. like uh, American Psycho. Yep. <laughs> um, so largely villains are not white. They're often fat, racially transcribed, queer, disabled folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and that's kind of re- reinforced in River- Riverdale, honestly. Hal is white, but he's also not Luke Perry hot. Yep, yep. Right? Yep. Um, and uh, Hiram Lodge is Latinx. Yep. Right? Um, uh, Molly doesn't fit normative beauty standards, and she's an informer in the, in the final um, uh, kind of... She, she has a whole uh, storyline where she's anti our main characters in the, in the second season. Wait, m- Molly, who? Mm, red-haired what's her name then she's their friend she wants to be in the musical and she doesn't get the lead role oh ethel ethel i'm so ethel, sorry ethel. i think i'm thinking of molly ringwald and then no I just got totally my because brain. she does have a molly yeah. ringwald thing going on so and i'm also saying this not to say that like these are good <laughs> things or should be reinforced like beauty standards i'm just saying that like it's interesting yeah. that our villains are, are not necessarily our villains but our people who like mm-hmm, we don't mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Tend yeah. to have these like like things, right? Yeah, um, they get these. Chick marginalized is kind of traits. like poverty porn, right? Yeah, he's raised in poverty. There's all this really damaging stuff about sex work and about yeah. um, uh, addiction and drug use. Yeah, um, he's a bad guy. Yep. Right. The other characters don't really have to do that. Um, Jughead and JP are perceived as threats to the community, and there's a lot of handholding that connects the serpents to indigenous roots. Yep. Now they pushed against that. Those are not our bad guys. Yes. But I find they, it interesting they make... that they are bad guys to the town. Yes. Right? It feels like an intentional challenge to that trope, but in that, there is always the question of how much are you re-perpetuating your own um, 
yeah. norms in order to subvert them. Yeah. And who who is doing that is often a question. Where do we start? Yeah. Yeah, what's, cent- what's central? So, um... Yeah, yeah that's... Yeah, I guess um, what I want to say is that I think that, that JP and Jughead challenge it pretty mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. but um, the ways in which crime genre criminalizes certain bodies is worth bringing up in the context of the show. Yes, um, Jack yes. Halberstam, who's a, a scholar, a queer scholar, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, makes this, a queer theory scholar, makes this argument about early Gothic texts, mm-hmm. but I think it's really useful here, mm-hmm. um, arguing that genre's depiction of deviant subjectivities housed in monstrous bodies allow the normal, mm. the healthy, and the pure to be known. Right. So that goes beyond the representation of villainy. Crime fiction often employs fear in a way that is organizational Mm -hmm. in that its aesthetics and the emotions evoked in the audience are mobilized in order to control and shape social patterns. The economy of emotional states in Riverdale and its mystery storyline teaches its readers what to fear by offering a transgressive experience followed by a return to the boundaries of what relative safety might look like. Um, there's always a return to heteronormative relationships. In fact, Kevin Keller's relationships with gay men are actively criticized in the show. They're dangerous. Don't do that. Don't go out into the woods, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we should be afraid to go out at night. Women should have an escort. The forest is a place of fear and danger, right? All of these things are reinforced by this show in different ways. And there's an overlap here with horror tropes and genres. How mm. is the murderer inside the house? Right. right? Right, um, right, he's right. the guy calling from the room next door that's about to kill you. Chick is the mistaken <laughs> identity, the false hero or the prodigal son. It's not really the prodigal son. <sighs> so the question that I kind of want to ask before the rewatch yeah. is, in what ways does Riverdale challenge genre conventions in a way that makes us think about the genre as a whole? And in what days does it fall into the traps of genre? And that's maybe where I'll leave it now, or now but it's something I think that we can really talk about in relation to this show, um, especially in how the social consciousness of different groups kind of come to be in different ways. Holy GM, what a con- deconstruction. I am delighted um, to take that into the rewatch as the wasps hopefully leave and these dogs are hopefully friendly, but not too friendly. Oh, it's a poodle. It's a really lovely floof. Well, oh, maybe we should wrap it up and appreciate some floofs while they're here. I agree. That's a lot to process. Yeah. And um, I think with that, we're going to jump on into episode 12, a genre-heavy episode. Um, I noted in particular while watching this uh, last, um, it is very penultimate in the season arc, but it feels very ultimate for much of the the genre story being told. Um, Yeah. So, thank you, Emily. I waved. Yes. (laughs) Bye-bye. Hello. Hello. It's still us. It's Ryan and Chloe. We're back. Hello. How are you, gang? Welcome to Riverdale, gang. That's <clears throat> not quite a rhetorical question because I think a rhetorical question has a specific, like, philosophical application, but it's a question I don't expect you to answer. Um, <laughs> well, we could answer how we are, Ryan, for our adoring fans. Swaddled in smoke. Oh, yeah, it is real smoky here in Vancouver. I think they're actually in the middle of shooting Riverdale. And oh, I'm yeah. And I'm curious to know if any of the smoke will make it into the... I guess everything can come out in post. Oh, y'all, the sky is gray and the sun is red. It's a deep apocalypse sky. If they don't use that for mood, I am disappointed. 
Um, that true, said, they color tone fairly deep saturation and I think kind of a blue-purple tint usually for the most. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what that does with the heavy overcast. Yeah. It's interesting, actually. It just occurred to me that um, Vancouver's desirability as a place to shoot might change because of the fires. Yeah, well, it looks like we're we're doing fire season now. That's just the thing. August is now smoke and fire season, much like snow at Christmas. Yes. So We're all a bit depressed about it, and perhaps you can hear it in our voices, Riverdale gang. Like... Who knows where the latest trend of aggressively dadist art will lead us if we are entering some weird utopia, dystopia, alternate future fiction realm? I mean... We are, though, because it's, like, dark out at 10 o'clock in parts of BC right now. Yeah. And the last time humanity was barreling forward through dramatic environmental and social change in the aughts going into the 20s during a resurge of dadism and surrealism... And uh, massive technological shifts with rising fascism, especially in Eastern Europe, and aggressive nationalism and ethnocentrism taking uh, grasp in the U.S. with the resurgent novel um, Chinese regime uh, socially transforming the uh, Central Asian landscape. Well, we all know how that went last time. Ryan's feeling very pessimistic. I am too, to be honest. I read a wonderful article recently though about a mother with leukemia raising her two small children and um like this notion of like polishing silver on the titanic um that is also a, like it was like a good parallel with climate change i'm gonna find mm. the, name of the article and tell you all about it riverdale gang yeah. in fact, i'm gonna just i'm just gonna do that it's called i felt despair about climate change until a brush with death changed my mind oh yeah that thing that by allison spodek kamowitz and is published on slate.com on march 9th um i felt rejuvenated after i read this piece Hmm. and i also saw some young people um recite poetry in new york Hmm. That helps. Last week, and I don't know if we're going to survive this mess, but the kids are all right, I'll tell you that much. And they're mad, and pretty soon they'll be able to vote. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be good, good registration blitz. Yeah. But what do we do when we are bogged down with the existential dread of modern existence, Chloe? Is this is this the segue to escapism in Riverdale? I think this is the segue to escapism <laughs> in Riverdale. Um... So the cheerful title of this week's episode is Anatomy of a Murder. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um and we're this is a great I this is like when like Riverdale was like starting to get dark. Yeah. In the last couple of episodes. This is when Riverdale got dark. They committed. They committed to the committed. darkness. I love um because I've watched uh, actually these last two episodes like at least twice, possibly more. Um, yeah, I've seen them a few times as I've, well. Yeah, I've had a lot of downtime and a lot of Netflix binge time in the last few weeks. Like, even just since last shooting, I've or last recording that we've done, I've watched these both at least twice. Um, and there's there's some really novel, smart things happening with pacing, I think. Um, there is a lot of... Like, the 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 build to the climax in this episode um, is so well-structured, so, like, rapidly strung together, 
all the dominoes start to fall down that are carefully placed. Um, and I, I think in this penultimate episode, we get a lot of, um, a lot of resolution, actually. Uh, hmm. most of the biggest, the biggest questions are answered here, really. Um, the, the biggest, uh, reveals happen here in a penultimate mm-hmm, episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah, the, and... the final episode is kind of plotty, isn't it? It's plotty, but character-driven plot. Yeah. Um, I really am impressed with the show for giving space to allow, you know, as much as TV allows, allow their characters to react to the traumas a little bit. Um, I would agree it's plotty and putting the chess pieces in the right pattern for season two. Um, But I think it's also... uh, There's... um, I wish I could cite this, but a quote from a, a discussion of why, what makes fan fiction so strong in comparison to regular media. And uh, one theory or one approach is that fan fiction is inherently character-driven because the characters are often the only recognizable component from the original media to glom onto um, in certain variations of, variation of the genre. And um, this makes fan fiction especially strong for character-driven work, um, which is something that uh, is carries a very particular emotional resonance. Um, I think a, a distinct emotional resonance um, as a core plotting choice. And I think Riverdale does that right, especially mm. in these last two episodes. Um, because what, we're, what we care about isn't whodunit. That's dealt with before the end, a whole episode early. But what we care about is how do the characters feel about who done it? How are they changed? Hmm. Um, and I I find that to be very inherently theatrical. Um, I think that's a common narrative decision in more indie shorthand theater um, hmm. that I often don't see in more blockbustery high end uh, filmmaking. Um, a great counterpoint would be uh, the Avengers series, which are masterpieces of a certain genre technical filmmaking, but in which many of the characters essentially stay in the same place. Hmm. Um, there is maybe a single movement throughout the film, especially in these huge ensemble clusters, um, but we really don't have time for any of these characters to breathe outside of these climactic um highly scored moments of emotional decision-making. Um, whereas in Riverdale, we're, we spend so much time wallowing in how broken everyone is, up to and including much of season two, um, which is uh, which takes pains to directly tie its consequences to um, not just the, the plot pieces moving of season one, but um, much of the consequences, I think, driven by the emotional fallout of season one. Uh, many of the bad decisions, especially, um, I think can be viewed as, as trauma coping responses. Hello, Tazzy. The I cat the has thing. joined. The cat was like, it's getting too intellectual. I need to meow. Um, well, time, that, Tazzy. That is a whoop. That is a very um, perceptive uh, and generous, I think, um, 
way of looking at the show. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much is intention, how much is happy accident in retrospect, but... Uh, you know, I really assert that this show is like a bunch of talented people got together to make money. Yep. I really do. I think it's a very... I think there's a lot of ways in, it's, in which it's a smart show. I think there's a lot of ways in which it's a bloody stupid show. <laughs> but I love it. I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. And um, it is... So earnest. Yes. And I like me an earnest cast. That's an important word. making of a show. Let us watch it. Thank you for tolerating my ramble of the day. No, I loved it. Uh, Headphones on. Cat acquired. This is the thing, is that Ryan is a little self-conscious about his rambles. Possibly. I can't actually tell. A little bit, because I know I do it a lot. And sometimes excessively. Um... But I always enjoy hearing Ryan talk. Thank you, Chloe. I hope you two do too, gang, and that you're not just, like, tolerating me constantly for Chloe's brilliance, which <laughs> would be legit. No no holds, uh, no It's okay. People no think hold. women are stupid, by and large, so it's okay if, like, they're <sighs> probably in it for you. Mm, the world's <laughs> broken. I think you're great. Thank you. I think you're great, too. Let's watch Riverdale, great gang. Ready for the badoom? Yeah, I'm so ready for the badoom. Excellent. Pressing the button, badoom. And then? I think my pitch was off this time. Bum, bum, bum. Oh, yeah. We've been making that a thing. Stories about a town. That's not what (laughs) Jughead sounds like. I'm sorry. One of the last few really um, lean into the repeated trope shot ones. Andrew Lynch imitating the Irish names. (laughs) Okay. Um. Yes, yes. I, I don't, I can't tell if that's a good joke or reference or if that's just deeply hilarious to us who know him. Well, no, it was on the show. <laughs> Theoretically, someone heard it. Oh, yeah. Andrew is canon. Andrew is canon. <laughs> um, so, uh, this whole business, there, there he is running by the front of my high school. Um, I go by there every, every weekend morning on the bus. Do you? Yes. Where you on, where? Oh, at TBC. Um, I pass Riverdale High every weekend, gang. Yes, um, meow. Yes, meow. Um, so there's this whole business about the gun. I'm so pleased that FP wasn't actually guilty. Mm-hmm. That would have made me so mad for so many reasons. It would have been an entirely different character story. Yes. It would have been a much more fatalistic, a much less hopeful character story. Yeah. And not, not in the spirit of Archie. No, indeed. It's hope, I think, is rooted in what Riverdale wants to be. I'm going to turn up the volume slightly. I love this council of the parents that occurs. This is a great um, governing circle. Especially (laughs) when this pops off (laughs) and Alice is revealed as complicit. Oh my god. I also, oh, I just watched the ending of The Breakfast Club today while I was at work. Oh. Um, sorry, work. Um, so, I've, <laughs> just, I've just seen the bookends of Molly Ringwald's theater, or theater, film career. Mm. So far. So I don't far. Think, I don't think this is the bookend of Molly Ringwald's career, don't worry. I think she, I think it will go on from here. If, uh, if anything, hopefully gently revitalized and spurred forward. Parents, parents, parents. I love how mad they are at Alice. Yeah, rightly so. <laughs> um, they also all comfortably overreact together. 
Yes. It's one of those moments where I think consciously in the world, we're seeing a shared overreaction um, that like, you know, when you, you see a pattern of behavior in a, in a big group of people and it's like, oh, that's the circumstance. Yeah. That's the situation. Oh, right. This phone call. I, this I heartbreaking remember. phone call. I don't remember. Oh, I just remember it's sad. I don't really remember. Well, react in real time, Chloe, to this sadness. Um, oh, no, right. His heartbreaking. See, the cat doesn't like it either. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Standout performance here, Cole. Holding it together for your mom. Crap, mother. I'm sorry to uh, pull that because I know that, like, women are so judgmental of each other and people are so judgmental of mothers. Yeah. But, like. Yep. That, that's a fail. Yeah. Like. Ugh. That's a fail. Of parenting. I hope they cast uh, Jughead's mom. I hope we get Jughead's mom yeah. and Jellybean both. Ugh. Mm. Speaking of parents, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, but uh, uh, an actor I've worked with has been uh, cast as one of the riv- yet unseen Riverdale parents. Oh, I think cool. I told you about this one. So what actor? Uh, Simon Hussey. Oh right, you told yes. me about this. Yes, I thought he'd been cast on Sabrina. No, that was uh, Annette, who we talked about oh, right. last time. Annette Riley. Um, who's possibly Sabrina's mom. I don't know, someone's mom. All these moms, all of my contemporaries are growing into mom and dad roles. What life is this? Andrew Lynch had a dad role in Tremors, I think, in a theater festival going on right now. I think. So weird. Yeah. We're all growing, growing up. Oof. Anyway. So Jughead's packing a bag. <laughs> it's neat, isn't it? Jughead's packing a bag. Hermione's telling Veronica to pack a bag. Archie and Betty are scrambling to fix everything themselves because they are the capable, competent humans of Riverdale, it would seem, which bodes so ominously given what season two is. Town only runs on the competence of these two children. Veronica's self-awareness continues to delight me. She's almost <laughs> manhunt. Went on a yep, yep, <laughs> yep. And Veronica, who brings the perspective of someone who has looked for the late night place in this town and failed, yeah, very recently. Aww, good performance. So crushed. He looks so crushed. He does look so crushed. And his friends all look so serious and, like, privileged, and we can't understand this, but we want to help. <laughs> yep. And he's just done. Yep, my dad was arrested for murder. Good luck helping. And then they do accidentally magically. Yeah. There's some proof that intention doesn't matter. They had no good intentions with that whatsoever. And yet yeah. they totally saved the day. Oh, boy. 
Sheriff Keller. Sheriff Keller, you don't... You were kind of a tool in season one, weren't you? Can you imagine this town from Sheriff Keller's perspective, though? Like, he has to constantly drag people that he sees on a social basis in for questioning. Yeah, that's a hard life. Yeah. It's like being the town executioner or something. That's one thing with my town. Um, all of our police services were provided by the RCMP, who oh. have kind of an in- internal policy of doing very broad regional transfers for younger... Which is probably or wise. Queer people. Yeah. So, like, the police officers in my community were almost never socially engaged, even though it was a very small town. Which is a challenge in other ways. (sighs) FP jumping on this grenade for his son. This, yeah. I wonder if there, like, there's definitely some hard vignetting happening. The the kind of circlet shading of the corners. Yeah. Um, I feel like they're drawing that more and more out. I need to do some. I need to compare to like earlier episodes because that felt far more um, saturated and vignette, uh, you know, memory framed than I seem seem to remember. Um. Oh, right, he makes this up. I can't remember why. Uh, Cliff Lawson threatening him. Oh, that's a good reason. Yeah. Threatening to straight up murder his son. Which, you know, wouldn't look at all suspicious or anything. But the whole poor people don't get a fair investigation when murdered. Truth. Thing. That, but also, like, regardless of... Whether or not they found out it was Cliff Blossom, Jughead would still be dead. Exactly. And as we've established, that's not something we want. Well, certainly not something As the show knows very well, that's not something any of us want. The jerks. Mm. Lovely little red herring with the files that they had thrown us to. In the early days of how Cooper has questionable moral fortitude... Who did... I can't remember who did torch the car. Oh, I think it was FP. Like... <laughs> like at that bad backwards ball cap. I'm so intense. I'm a criminal. <laughs> or am I just a hipster from East Van? <laughs> Honestly, it was probably just that they couldn't get the lighting right with a normal ball cap. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> with that tightly shot uh... reflecting flame. Hmm. Y'all, let him out of jail. A bunch of teens are here with proof. Very Scooby-Doo. Is he supposed to tell them that he just, like, like, he's not, that seems very illegal to tell everyone that he just confessed. (sighs) Like, they're not really protecting his rights or anything. I don't know. I don't know anything. Uh, Yeah, that's a very, that's a valid point. Again, we've established that's not a priority in Riverdale. The, um... Judicial process, as it is outlined in law, is not always well followed. But, uh, yeah. I'm racking my brain. I do not have that trivia knowledge offhand. (sighs) So does... The mom doesn't know at this point. I don't think Penelope knows. Right. Penelope, thank you. I think Penelope is... Also duped. Her utter coldness. Not, what did she almost say, though? Not. I don't know. I didn't quite 
can catch. Hmm. Cliff is so awful. I Penelope is so much so interesting. Hmm. I I think she was done a little dirty last uh, second season, but I am so interested in who she is and what she does in yeah. this in this collapse of life. Yeah. They're very huddled uh, around Cheryl. It's very sweet. It is sweet. I'm a little bit, like, I just don't know. Um, Kevin, the messenger speech from sorry, offstage. I'm just, yeah, I'm just confused. Oh, right, yeah. And also, like, awkward for the kid of the sheriff, like... Yeah. Anyway. As much as, uh, like, Kevin does kind of lean into that role just a little bit. You know, he doesn't shy away from being the sheriff's son. Certainly not when it is of privilege or use. I think that is a role he has taken on. Wow, those are serious boots that Cheryl's wearing. (laughs) Everything about Cheryl is serious. This young woman just had her birthday. It was all over my Instagram. Oh, lovely. She celebrated with the cast. She seems so delightful. This must happen sometimes in small towns. Yeah. For a split second, I thought she was going to hug him. The first time I saw this. Yeah. But Cheryl had other emotions that needed expressing. (sighs) He has every right to... He had every right to come to school. Oh, yeah, of course. Why is everyone being such a jerk? Because they're sensitive to the rich white girl and not to the kid from the wrong side of the tracks who has a record and history of being problematic. Mm. Bias. All the bias. Lily Reinhardt looks great in that blouse. I like this look on her. What? I can't remember the scene. I must be so relieved. Oh, yeah. Yep. All those nothing good to say to a grieving person. Yeah. Problems. Issues. You're right, Tazzy. Yeah, there's so many real emotions in this uh, episode. I forgot. Very much. All that hard angular lighting showing the intensity. <sighs> No one is looking out for Jughead here. No. No one. No one at all. It's awful. It is really awful. I quite agree. It's... It's interesting. Like, there are more explicit expressions of bias than I think... Maybe maybe that's being optimistic or naive. But... The way his story shakes out feels... But I guess that's, that's Riverdale, right? It's something of a distillation of, yeah. of certain social dynamics uh, taken to hyperbole. Hmm. Also, that's, that's fair and true, mm. right? But it, it is sort of like putting someone in solitary because they're not safe in general pop in prison. Like, for your own protection is still... 
a crappy situation. Yeah. This episode of the Luke Perry dad dadding, hard decision dadding is uh <sighs> more feels. Yeah. I'm really disappointed in um what's his name? Hmm? Uh Luke Perry, what's his character? Fred. Fred. I'm so disappointed in Fred in this moment. Yeah. He's scared. He's so scared for his son. Right? He's scared enough to send his son away. And in that Ugh. same beat, that's where he fails Jughead. Because his priorities are in panic mode. He's not making good decisions. Ugh. Ugh. As much as it is well-earned, Jughead leaning into the self-regulation is also a type of the sad. Yes. Oh. Oh, I can't remember. Oh, is this... <laughs> oh, yeah. Is this when her and Alice go... I think this is it. Now I'm blanking on what this moment is. It's oh, the, right, right, right. Fake out tension. It's a nice tension. big piece of foreshadowing to the next season. Yep. And how certain <laughs> moments could have gone love, if Alice had just... I also love how Betty goes full-on parent mode. Like, what are you doing with that? <laughs> Why do you have one of those? <laughs> <laughs> As if <gasps> any one of us is surprised by Alice's marksmanship. Ah. <sighs> He's, he just looks like a sheepish school. <laughs> I love that so much. Definitely foreshadowy, but also a little bit a particular sort of Hal Cooper melodrama. I don't. Why did he take them again? Um. Well, he's about to explain, so thankfully he'll catch us up. Um. <laughs> The family thing, that's the big secret of this one. The fact that they are a blossom blood. That's what he was trying to hide. Right? That's why they storm uh, the blossom house in the middle of the night. Oh. What? This doesn't make any sense. It's because it's a big secret that he's a blossom. Oh, right? right. Because shame and family drama. I mean... Like, small town, I guess small town grudges is our thing. You'd know better than me. My, my family had a low-key feud. <laughs> pretty pretty chill now. No one ever murdered. Some occasional charges in court. All thrown out, though. Good times. Family history's fun. None, none of this Blossom Cooper noise. Yeah. No, no murders. No Hatfields and McCoys? No, none of that. I'm a blossom? I am never allowed to sell land to certain neighbors, though. That's kind of a, just like, don't make your grandfather roll in his grave moment. Just okay. just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. Um, <sighs> Cooper. But they're not closely enough related for it to matter. It really doesn't. It's just how hoping that everyone in this small, close-knit town with a long memory just happens to forget that he's a Blossom Blood, because that apparently matters to him somehow. <sighs> no one forgets who's related to anyone in small towns. That's the most unbelievable thing about this for me. Oh, that's interesting. That makes sense. That's like, it's very hobbity. Yeah. 
especially with the kind of pride the Blossoms hold in their genealogy. If anything, the weird part is that anyone forgot in the first place. The witching hour. This is some sort of thing to storm in, in the middle of the night and take a pregnant woman away. But... The mental eats about... Hey! The cat is doing a thing. I'm going to resolve what the cat is doing. Hmm. Climbing on the antique heritage furniture, are you, Tazzy? It's not bad antique. Good grief. Don't make me sound rich. <laughs> so I shouldn't bring up the family home in upstate New York? It's New Hampshire. That's totally better, I'm sure. Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh... Speaking of rich people, mm-hmm. look at, like, I, one thing I love about this show is that it makes um, rich people look crazy, which is something I believe firmly <laughs> and deeply. Yes, yes, I, I will embrace this, both in that they got there in the first place and that they are able to stay rich in this strange, bizarre, exploitive economy and world. And, like, Penelope being all creepy pro-Blossom when she married into the family, all of these things. All of these things. Alice taking any bone and chewing it savagely. Your eugenics experiment, she calls third cousins accidentally banging each other. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good moment for the Cooper family. I think it may be their last good moment. Actually, yeah, as a as a unit, in the pre Crazy Hal times, yeah, maybe we're gonna have to rewatch season two to find out. I love that Molly Ringwald is like being like the kids, like, um, personal yeah, go to lawyer. I mean, no, like I went down there and pretended I was his attorney. <laughs> like, it's a very true, true, move. and she's rolling with it. <laughs> that's actually really unusual normally when people confess details change hmm. like that's not abnormal for details to change right the fact that it's the same every single time is that is kind the of suspicious thing hmm makes sense <sighs> this careful tying of all the plots together joaquin mattering suddenly other than yeah. dear kevin getting laid <sighs> This is, mm. yeah. Molly offers no hope here. Molly, yeah. This is also (laughs) Molly Mary. This is also a a moment in which it becomes a very different show. Like if you took this show out of like, I don't know, compared to the pilot. Yeah, like if you took this episode out of, like if you made all the characters in their mid forties and took them like set this episode mm. in New York, it would just be a, a totally normal crime drama. <laughs> you know you know what I mean though? I do, I do. This could be an episode of any procedural. Um and it could also be just about um I mean, I could say something something, Twin Peaks something, but that's been said. That's <laughs> as yeah. yeah. There's a lot of Twin Peaks references in this show, I understand. <laughs> I don't know personally, but... But, um, yeah, it does feel like... I, I feel like they resolve the genre here. They resolve the genre question. Um, and that's interesting, seeing yeah. how dramatically they shift genres in and through yeah. season two. Yeah, 
yeah, there are a lot of genre shifts in this show, aren't there? Mm-hmm. That never really occurred to me. Like, both very explicit, uh, episodically, and in broad strokes. I feel like there's um, a big halfway genre shift in season two, that they've kind of cycled through two major genre strokes, but... Yeah. Meow. Right, Tazzy? Kitty doesn't know how she feels about it either. Do you, Kitty? But she has opinions, loud yeah, ones. She always has opinions. Especially about being picked up. So, feelings, parental feelings. Yeah. FP in a it rock and a hard place. Come back here. Ugh. Well, youth sleuths. Uh, at it again. Yeah. It is weird, Archie. Why did the... Good instincts, Veronica. It's almost like you are the daughter of someone who hires people to kill other people. (laughs) (laughs) Veronica's Uh... learned some things, some places, sometime. Joaquin just knowing he's caught and shrinking into that chair. I also know... I also love that Veronica's like... Mm -hmm. I'm talking to you as the sheriff's son. Oh my god. Way to pull rank. My goodness. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's scorned, right? That's, 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 Kevin is hiding behind that. Because this boy done screwed him emotionally. Yeah. I also love that Veronica says no one uses their one phone call to tell someone to stay low, lay low. Because, like, Mm -hmm. her dad had a one phone call, you know? (laughs) Yep, she's thought that out. Hey, she might have had a one phone call at some point. Like, I can imagine Veronica Lodge having been picked up. By the police and delivered back to her penthouse. I feel like party Veronica has has lived. Yes, absolutely. Ah, this mm. stark denouement explanation of what happened. Ugh. Hmm. That's so interesting. This is a uh, this provides me a little piece of insight into young initiative newly initiated members of gangs like mm-hmm, walking into mm-hmm. situations and not asking questions right and being like did this person do it do i care i'm just gonna clean up the blood i'm scared i'm not you know what i mean yeah like do i care maybe not ranking on that list is a question yeah but just like <laughs> probably not do i need to sure. know do i want to know what do i need to know to do my job and get out of here yeah that would be not awesome but also a you're in too deep now. Yeah. Uh, generic serpent number three. Who tall boy basically replaced next season? Yeah. Mustang tall boy. <sighs> Veronica Ooh. plays some good power cards here. Yeah. Also clocking that they're the only three who know that whole story and that Joaquin was even there. Yeah. And that, like, stays. <laughs> that never comes out in the wash. Yeah. Which will be interesting, because I think Joaquin is back and present at season three. Yeah, I think you're right. Look at these two pastel children. So, 1950s. <sighs> and Jughead is on the sleuth train. Yeah. I love this motel. I absolutely love it. It's at the corner of 6th and Main, and Mm. it is so well used in this sequence. (laughs) This is exactly what this motel looks like and what it should be used for. (laughs) It looks like people get murdered in it, Mm -hmm. except it's clean. 
Have you stayed there? No, it just looks clean from the outside. Have you stopped there? No. We just transit past frequently. Yes. Got, I, yeah. I cycle by it all the time. Well, fair. Well, we should go there someday on our grand tour of Riverdale locations. Yeah. In fact, we could, like, treat ourselves to an evening at this motel and, like, cut <laughs> together the episode of our location tour. Oh, wow, Chloe, the show we drug should... death in this show. I forgot. We should figure out what like, uh, room number this is. Oh, yeah. I bet they. I bet they have a shot at the door. See if we can reserve okay, the Riverdale see. room. Yeah, that's maybe a level of deep fan that I don't know okay. if I need to breach, but... <laughs> let's see, let's see, let's see, though. Okay, so it's... We might have to rewind after the recording. If I feel like it probably won't show up again. No. <sighs> yep. You I... know, if they just had Jughead with him, they'd have a perfectly plausible cause. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. You know, even a year ago, that probably clocked differently. What? What do you mean? The overdose. Oh, yeah. I feel like the wide presence of uh, overdoses and fentanyl poisonings have uh, doubled down in public media awareness in the last year since this and last no one, aired. No one else is the initials HL. Well, not in Riverdale. Yes, Tazzy. That was a good yawn, Tazzy. Don't Daddy. nuzzle the mic, Tazzy. Thank you for your love. <laughs> Good love. This is the Tazzy show featuring Riverdale. <laughs> it has. So it's city like... City center. It's like in the center? Yeah, right under the city of the city center okay. sign. And it's the one on the, of the... Like, there's two doors next to each other. It's the one on the left. Yeah, we'll just have to scope that. Okay. Presumably they use the same door. Presumably. Because... They're the CW. They don't have the budget to rent two motel rooms, right? What? <laughs> <clears throat> so many dad feels, so many parent feels, so many good parent-child talks. Yeah. So much emotional resolution and progress in this episode. I like it. I like that these very, like, practical physical problems are transforming aggressively into emotionally re- resolving problems oh poor Hermione she just finally has it yeah yeah it's all gone wrong and Veronica does a good here Veronica does a good oh Joaquin Mm. yes sweet boy oh Look at these. You like him because he's a bad boy, Kevin. You're so into him. So into him. That's a good kiss. Yeah, that is a good kiss. Smoosh good. Yeah, relax into it, Kevin. There you go. That was a good smoosh. That was a good smoosh. And good flirt out, Joaquin. Aww. Yep. It's a good little see you later outro. See you later, kid. <sighs> I forget this plot point. I didn't want to say some truth. Here's the secret info. Uh-oh. Here's the key, Kevin. Oh, I want them to make out more. Maybe th- season three. Although I think Joaquin is actually going to be in uh, Juvie with Archie. That's what I've read. That's what I've read. Oh, now this power move. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, no, we're not at that power move yet. That's not for a whole eight more minutes. 
This is the prelude with the beautiful spider brooch. Yeah. Is that a recurring spider brooch? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, when she isn't wearing the spider brooch, I notice. Hmm. Anyway. Penelope has I... drunk deep of the Kool-Aid. They, they, they do a good job denoting flashback. They do. With visuals. It feels flashback. Yeah, but it isn't hokey. I mean, not any hokier mm-hmm. than, like, this show is. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not like a hard sepia tone. It's just, like, an exaggeration of what was. Yeah, and it's not, like, slowed down. It's like, you know how it gets, like, like the frames mm-hmm. seem to blend together? Yeah. They've chosen a reasonably subtle visual technique to indicate. Um, and I think it's a very, like easily fade into the background techniques yeah, given the that it's the last time he gets ruled out too <laughs> yep after this it is just hal all the way down hal's and the murder um yeah flashback technique yeah. it's like i wonder in our like instagram trained eye vignette and oversaturation probably looks more normal than it would have four years ago i'm curious how that will age yeah I can't tell what's going through Penelope's head in this moment. I, I feel like I can never tell what's going on in Penelope's head. There is such a mask. It's, it, it, I, I am very impressed with the portrayal of Penelope in general. Like, she yeah. reacts, she feels things, but it, it never makes sense to me. It always lands in anger. In a way that I don't quite follow, but is very intriguing. <sighs> oh boy. And like, the fact that she thinks this is a line that would not be crossed when that is the core of what happened. Like, what a total failure in Penelope's story. <sighs> this scene red is so overdramatic to me the first time through. I also don't know what it means. I, I write it just as her being awful, awful, awful to her daughter. Right? Like, taking out anything that is remotely challenging as anger, as rage. Hmm... Tazzy, do you agree with my psychoanalysis? Tazzy, you just are so interested in that microphone, and it's really not working for us. (laughs) Really not working for us. I feel like we've been very quiet this episode, because even though it's been, like, even though we recapped it first, a lot happens in this episode, and I feel like I've gotten sucked in a lot. You've given me so many openings to pontificate. I'm very grateful. Oh, I'm so glad you've been pontificating. I'm sorry I hadn't 100% noticed because I've been so absorbed in the show. Success of Riverdale. Distract you from my rambles. No, I love your rambles. Thank you, Chloe. I also can't always hear you through these headphones, I'll be honest. I'm probably going deaf in the one ear that is uncovered. That is possible. Many competing sensory experiences. The jacket. The big reveal jacket with the big sneaky plot point that is so, like, dumb luck, random, that it works, that Betty's Nancy Drewing works somehow. It really shouldn't, but it does. 
yeah, this this really is just a string of a mm-hmm. string of plot points, a string of happenings. This is a happening heavy episode. As it all falls down. You know, it's interesting. This feels like the whole back half of the episode. And I know there's only like eight minutes left. Yeah. But this feels true. Like I know how much I, I've rewatched this a few times recently and with how much more happens in this episode, it's like, how is this almost over? I love Betty never giving up. Mm-hmm. The fact that she is so immediately rewarded is absurd. I'm with Archie. Betty, this is weird. It's super weird. Why did you have to put it on him? <laughs> Why couldn't they just look through the pockets? Remotely ease of reach. I'm with Kevin here. We are totally grasping at straws. This is absurd. This is... What is Mont Blanc? Do you know? Is it lipstick or something? Uh, Probably. I don't... I... There's like a food... I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is just chalk it up to heightened reality, I guess. Moments because yeah. th- it doesn't make any sense. And this really well shot moment, yeah. I like how they did this. The reveal because we care yeah. about what how they feel. They're all doing so much face acting. Yeah, this Such poor good five face acting. Wow, that's a really good reaction from Cole Sprouse. Yeah, the slow, steady reveal of it all on their faces. Oh, good crying from Lily Reinhardt there. Such a nice, sharp shot. Ooh, this is good, like, teen horror, but better. <laughs> really nice, tight, fo- tight, narrow focus. Like, each of their faces was sharp, everything else was blurred. <laughs> Sorry, I'm distracted. There's an interview on the couch. Mm-hmm. They all do an interview on a couch in almost the same configuration. I just right. realized, which is so funny. <laughs> Good instincts, Betty. Um, I like how Cheryl takes this information in a completely unexpected direction. Automatically, without a beat of hesitation. It's because she already knows. Yeah. She's got good instincts about her family. She knows. Yeah. Oh, this is like the making of Cheryl, these moments, these sad, awful, awful moments. Poor girl. As she is forged in fire. And just... Yeah. Just wipe the tears and on. This is a big episode. Powerful scene. I think this is where I started to like Cheryl. Actually, it was around here. Yeah, well, how she deals with this is so chilling and so powerful. Oh, this yeah. this line we're coming up right here. You did a bad thing, Daddy. <laughs> Isn't that a great line, Tazzy? I know you didn't hear it, and you wouldn't understand because you're a cat. But it was very melodramatic. I'm petting Tazzy into submission. Yes. Very oh. assertively. That's right. They give it. They use Alice's inappropriate relationship with them. Yeah. As underage sources for her journalistic career. Poor kid. What a brutal end Jason faced. Yeah. It's really grim. 
Yeah. The vein of deep, dark things happening in Riverdale. Really, truly dark. And irreconcilably dark. Yeah. Tazzy, your only option is away from the computer. If you <laughs> want to walk away, you have to go away from the computer, Tazzy. Not across it. Not across it. Wow, that is, is really intense. I forgot. Thanks for Blake breaking the tension, Tazzy. How intense, like, watching, even in a show like this, a yeah. son kill his father, or a father kill his son. Yep. Is... And they, they... Oh, man, such shock from Cole Sprouse is so good. They give us such good permission to be shocked with all the characters' reactions. It's ta- taken so seriously. Yeah. I like how they montage this as well. It is, again, saying this isn't about the murder mystery. We are montaging through that trope completely. We are resolving. And then we're on to what really matters. How do they all feel now? Whoops! Tazzy. Tazzy, get out. We're just gonna be... About three seconds behind y'all now, gang, because that cat managed to press pause. But that's did. fine. Um, my buddy Joseph um, was once writing an essay, and his cat managed to just walk over the keyboard and press select all, delete, save. Oh, no. <laughs> right before the concluding paragraph kind of situation. That's very impressive. Yes. Good news. Hiram's coming home. That's, yep. That's exactly the news that Veronica wanted. That's totally how she needs to process emotional whiplash. Oh, he's going to be in jail for the summer. Sorry, Mary. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You be careful. Don't start any militias now, Arch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. He starts a militia and becomes a... Gang Lord's Acolyte. I forget how that word's pronounced. Acolyte. Acolyte, thank you. And. Yep. That he was so careful. (laughs) (sighs) Ah, yes. Oh, Arch. Oh, Arch. (sighs) Oh, yeah. Oh, this chilling fine. The way they just point. Final scene. Oh, why so had he done it? See, it's not about the what. And I love it's that Cheryl's why. up front. She has so much power. Yep. He's in the barn. You see her lips say. Yep. And Penelope is autopilot with her here. Yeah. She knows who is who is leading right now. I like this song at the end, actually. What song is this? I don't know, but you're right. It's It's an extremely effective choice. For this moment. Again, they wrap so much, but it doesn't feel over at all. Yeah. We're just coming into the height of it and the heat of it. Blooms now, my friend. (sighs) Um, yeah. Such a punch. Oh, I know. It's so dark. So, I have a confession to make. Yeah. I, I do love this show. I enjoyed the second season. But, but it does not have the magic darkness of that moment. Yep, yep. That is that is quite a payoff. 
that is yeah. that is a payoff that they only get once because it is the payoff of the like subverted depths of what we all think of as Archie, right? Yeah. Like this is this is the the culmination of a season of darkening. Yeah. And it's really like it's really satisfying. Yeah. I at least I found this episode really satisfying the first time I saw it and when I go back to it I'm like, "Oh yeah." Yeah. <laughs> it's got a punch to it for sure. Yeah. And you know, every now and again I'll be watching a show like this and I'll be like, "Oh, this is getting melodramatic. I don't know how I feel about it." Blah, 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 blah. And then I think, "Um, except this happens." Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I love that there's, like, oh, like I know it isn't, there's nothing about this that is true crime, mm-hmm. but I love that this show has, like, the complete god-awful weirdness of true crime. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, 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 I see what you mean with that. Um, like, like, weird, sadistic, awful stories that, like, if you sit through too many, like, you just, your brain feels like it's come, come loose in your head and is, like, kind of shaking. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah, the really ugly bits of humanness, of humaning. Yeah, and I often wonder if shows like this satisfy a purpose. Like, let's say, for Mm. example, that human beings are truly, as a general rule, oops, I just dropped my glasses, bad people and actually violent and, you know, sadistic, predatory, blah, blah, blah instincts. I wonder if shows like this, where all of that is, like, flashy and safe, Mm is a release for people. I think different catharses emerge at different points. Um, and I think it's... I think it's risky to read too much into yeah, directly tying zeitgeist to genre shift. Um, but I think it's something that, in retrospect, will be very illustrative. Um, what survives, what becomes signature. Um, yeah. I think it's interesting that we are in a real true crime resurgence... Um, procedurals are going strong. This is bread and butter of television, and uh, especially true crime podcasts have really had a mm. surge um, up into the Netflix realm of things. Um, I think it's definitely serving a social role. I know maybe around, you know, not quite a decade ago, but uh, I remember really taking note of all of the anti-hero, um, almost slice-of-lifey, uh, narratives happening uh, a few years ago. The um, the huge ensemble piece that is Game of Thrones, that's very much about you know, yeah. moral edginess alongside uh, Breaking Bad, which really celebrates criminality. It's, My mom it, loved that show. It's spectacularly well made. It um, It's steeped in toxic masculinity, and it's aware of most of it. Hmm. Um, so it can be a challenging show to watch. It's one of those shows that... Um, it's, it's like, like a show like Rick and Morty. It can be, um, a good warning sign show if someone is not recognizing that they shouldn't be identifying with the lead character, Mm. uh, or rather a good, you know, look at your life, look at your choices moment if you identify with, um, uh, Brian Cranston's spectacular portrayal on Breaking Bad or Rick Sanchez, um, but they also, they came out not quite side by side, but out of the same mood um, that I think is kind of a precursor to the crime drama catharsis of today. 
And I don't know, but I, I remember noting it and absorbing it and feeling a little bit concerned. Mad Men is another good example um, of very, like, questionable people doing usually bad things and being kind of spectacular and sad. Hmm. Yeah. This... That's sort of the, it was sort of the, well, not the first. I feel like, um... I mean, Arthur HBO... Arthur Mills would <laughs> would take umbrage. You mean Arthur Miller? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I was thinking in television, though, I feel like Six Feet Under and The Wire and hmm. Sopranos were sort of the first. Yeah, Sopranos is, is yeah, yeah. you're right, is kind so... of signature known for that. Yeah, like the like the ethical question is always really ambiguous. Mm-hmm. There's a little less of that on Six Feet Under. Yeah, because Six Feet Under is about how death comes to us all. Yes, it's a very different social question. Whereas um, these very like masculine social hierarchies are being deconstructed in Breaking Bad and Mad Men yeah. in, in uh, uh, um, you, you know in Game of Thrones in a way. Yeah. Um, but I think I think even like I feel like the fact that those shows became mainstream. Mm-hmm. I really don't know that much about the history of television. I'm kind of talking out of my butt here, but um, <laughs> what do I, we always do, Chloe? Yeah, it's true. Um, anyway, all this to say is I feel like darkness has become much more mainstream as a thing mm. for people to consume. I maybe it always has been. I don't know. I didn't really watch mm. television that much when I was growing up, to be honest. I think what type of darkness is what changes mainly. Um, mm-hmm. I think the expression and the intensity and the scale are all kind of shifting with the times. Um, yeah, I, I do feel that Riverdale is fairly intense. Um, I do think that it uh, builds on tradition of emotional manipulation that shows uh, on the CW sort of are have a signature history with. That particular type of high drama emotional mani- manipulation, going back to uh, Everwood uh, or the OC, um, those kind of nineties you know, Dawson's Creek. Hmm, I've um, never seen any of those. Hmm. It's a very particular type of of um, melodrama soap opera e one hour storytelling hmm. um, that I think is a precursor and is definitely um, a founding type that. You know, the CW produces a type of show, right? Yeah. That right. Riverdale is the arrow to in a big way. Hmm. Cassie's just perched on me now. It's very interesting. She's perched on your hip. She's just chilling. So there's my history of television ramble. That was awesome. Moment. I you. love that episode. And I also love the title of the next episode, The Sweet Hereafter. I've yeah. never um, encountered the actual The Sweet Hereafter. I just know the title to you too, Tazzy. I think I overpet her. Yes. Sometimes she gets overstimulated and gives a nip. Oh. Um, but it's one of my favorite, just the sweet hereafter. The phrase? Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it, it suggests a lot. Yes, it does. Um, I'm super ready to, so we're doing another little binge watch and we're watching the 12th and 13th episodes one right after the other, and I'm willing to wrap up and get launch right into the next one. Yes, I want to um, scream to the heavens about uh, the film Crazy Rich Asians, which I saw the other night, oh. uh, and it's super awesome. Oh, great. I I've highly heard, recommend. i heard very good things. Um, it, like, I grew up watching, watching Julia Roberts and Sandra Bullock rom-coms with my mom on the regular. That was our bread and butter. Oh, 
really? That's so cute. I didn't know that. And this is very much a, like, return to the golden age of Julia Roberts. Um, Constance Wu is a powerhouse, and she shows it. She, um, she maneuvers through the genre so gracefully, mm-hmm. uh, and with such confidence and charge, um, with this very particular, um, it struck me how, um, because I really only know her work from Fresh Off the Boat, where she's playing very much a character role. Okay. Um, and it, it really struck me how, uh, expertly she maneuvered between sort of Constance Wu-isms, sort of what, what reads as familiarly, signaturely her. Mm-hmm. And what felt very signature to the book, what what felt like lines straight out of the book, which I haven't read, but which um, Amanda, who I was there with, uh, had, um, sort of the, the, the heavy character-defining statements. Hmm. There was such a, such a careful balance between being Constant Wu, the, Constant Wu the brand, the character, the star in the making, and being the standout romantic character for this film. Um, and I think it was just... just expertly handled cool i didn't realize that someone from fresh off the boat was on it yes. i love the fresh off the boat writer comedian ellie wong i absolutely yes. love i haven't seen hard knock wife yet but i've seen baby cobra probably about <laughs> 10 times now because yes. i love watching people react to it it's yeah i i really enjoyed baby cobra um i watched it side by side with a again with a rewatch with nanette and it didn't hold up quite as well. Net. Oh boy! Well, talk. Let's talk after because okay. I won't touch that with a ten foot pole. Uh, y'all should watch Nanette. I know basically what feels. it's about. I just haven't quite had the emotional energy to sit through it and start crying. Yep. No, you got to wait for that. You really got to wait for that. It's going to be. I've given my um, my mom currently has the homework of watching Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Uh, Nanette is going to be like gay two point <laughs> so great yeah once we've gone deeply through both seasons of queer eye by the way i wanted wanted to say i had my first experience with like my family really not getting my identity it was really uncomfortable Mm. um over the over the week when i was in new york and i very sort of gently implied that it might be nice if they did their own research instead of me having to explain everything yeah my aunt went out and bought a book about gender identity. Yay. It was great. She showed it to me. She said, I'm going to educate myself. And I was like, okay. Good job, family. Good <sighs> job. That's the goal. That's that's the ideal. Yes. I'm so happy for you. And very impressed with your aunt. Yes. Well, she was a teacher for 35 years. so Still kind of exhausting, though, isn't it? It is kind of exhausting. I mean, the other thing is that she didn't hadn't gotten around to reading the book by the time I left, so she still mm-hmm. asked me a bunch of questions, which I say with love. Like, I do love my aunt very much. Yeah, and... we wouldn't bother putting in this effort for people we didn't love. True. True, true. Okay, I think we ha- are wrapping this one up. I yes. love that episode. I love it so much, and I'm excited for the, for the final one. I'm Yay! All right, gang. Well, Riverdale is shot, and our podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, and Musqueam nations. Uh, we are super grateful to all of the folks in Patreon supporting Thunderquack, the Thunderquack Network as a whole, and uh, Mike and the team. Uh, thank you all for hanging with us, gang. We'll be back next week with a big finale. That's right. I'm Chloe. I'm Ryan. See you later. <laughs>